We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, Chris Webster here. I've started going through our past episodes and remastering them. I've learned a lot about editing and such and just wanted the back catalog to sound awesome. I'm replaying an episode we released on September 14th, 2016, where we talk about the results of a survey we were created and released on Facebook. Most of this is still relevant five years later. The editing isn't as tight and the equipment has improved since this recording. But either way, enjoy this encore presentation of episode 93 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 93, for September 14th, 2006. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about a survey that I put up online back in early August to try to find out where most of the problems are for CRM archaeologists. The results may surprise you. So, go figure out what your problems are and how you can solve them, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Doug in Scotland. Hey. Sonia in Utah. Hello. And Stephen in Calgary. Hello. All right. So I'm back to the show. Um, thanks again to uh, Bill for hosting last week and Chris for uh, Chris Sims for recording the show. It went really well. Um, and thanks to you guys that participated in that show. I thought it was um, I thought it was really good. So uh, we actually bumped this show for that show because we had three people coming on for an interview. Um, and this show is going to be all about a, a really short informal survey that I put up on basically just on Facebook. I think it linked over to Twitter too, but I'm not sure. Um, but I called it 99 problems because, uh, <laughs> the, the current conversation on Facebook, well, the, the, the continual conversation, I should say, in the Archaeo Field Text Group and the North American Archaeological Tech Forum on Facebook, primarily though the Archaeo Field Text Group, I feel like um, it's a bigger conversation over there, is always about several things. You know, what are our big problems in CRM? People are always complaining about the same things, it seemed, and I just wanted to formalize that um, in, a, in some kind of a survey and say, you know, what are, what are your big issues? What are your big problems? How much have you worked in the last year? Because that's always a big problem. Um, and then, you know, the, the questions kind of had some background questions so we could set up and understand who is, who is, uh, what type of person was answering the questions on the survey. So I've got, you know, you know, what kind of positions do you have? Are you employed full-time or project-based? Um, and how many months have you worked in the last year? And let me answer, let me talk about that question real quick, because I did, I did talk to at least one person that misunderstood that question and they thought it meant when I said in the last year, I meant in the last 12 months from right now, but he took it to mean, you know, 2016, I think. So he said four months, uh, I think was his response. And this is a friend of mine. So I don't, he knows I was going to talk about this. Um, and, uh, but no, I meant in the last 12 months and I think most everybody got that judging by the answers. So, um, Anyway, let's go ahead and talk about this survey real quick. Um, we had a total of 59 responses. And we'll mention not everybody answered every question. I didn't make all of them um, mandatory. So you could answer ones and skip questions if you wanted, if you weren't comfortable or didn't want to answer it for some reason. And um, 
So, but almost all 59 people uh, responded to every question. So let's, uh, let's dig into this a little bit. So the first one is basic is simple. It says, uh, how long have you been a CRM archeologist? And it was kind of split a little bit. We had uh, 17, 28% responded um, five to 10 years. Uh, and that's kind of like right in the middle there. Um, uh, 18% responded three to five years. And then it was split 16.9% between uh, one to three years, 15 plus years and 10 to 15 years. So we got a pretty good spread, I think, um, on, on this question. Guys, what do you think about the... Uh, uh, do you think this is 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 going to be a, a survey that has some relatively industry significant answers based on that spread? Statistically no. speaking, <laughs> statistically I, I, speaking, no. Yeah. Well, and and I, uh, a lot of these responses are pretty much what you would expect them to be based off of uh, what the conversations have been in, in those forums mm-hmm. that you know you were talking about where you advertised it. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that there's a huge amount that's new there so much as um, it's just nice to see it all laid out. Yeah. Well, I was surprised to see um, that it was the, the highest percentage of respondents at five to 10 years, uh, 17 of the respondents um, was only 28.8% because I would have expected, I would have personally expected if I had just guessed on this, that more of the respondents would have been in for a shorter period of time, because that seems to be the demographic that's in Archeo field techs, you know, a lot of, a lot of, Newish, younger people, or at least less than ten years in the in the business. Um, at least the ones that I recognize. I mean, there's over eighteen hundred people in that group, and there's probably less than a hundred that are active um, and post frequently. So it's difficult to actually judge that. But um, just judging by you know Facebook in general and people who participate in groups, it is typically the younger crowd. Um, but this seems to be split um, uh, amongst uh, you know a. a a healthy range of a healthy range of people for experience. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Okay. And the next question, uh, uh, what position do you currently hold most often? And I, and I said that I phrased that because, you know, you could be a field tech on one project and a crew chief on the next project and then back to field tech again. So field tech and crew chief can be, can be somewhat interchangeable for, um, uh, it could be somewhat interchangeable when you're in that, time frame in your career, you know, when you've got a lot of experience as a field tech and then you're asked to be made a, you're asked to crew chief occasionally. Um, cause a crew chief, depending on the company, um, really is a, uh, a raised up field technician a little bit. They're just like the field technician that's in charge of the other field technicians in some companies, the crew chief writes parts of the reports and is more of a project manager. Um, but in my experience, crew chief typically just means you're wrangling the other field techs and making sure they're doing what they're doing. And you're, you know, filling out those, those relevant parts of the, uh, site record. And like Doug is saying here in the background, it's also mainly in the West. That's true. That's how, that's how crews are, are mainly sorted out here in the West. When you got like a four-person field crew and a crew chief uh, with three other field technicians, then that, that crew chief is typically just a, um, you know, a field technician that's making an extra 50 cents an hour. So, but anyway, um, we had 26 respondents, uh, 44% that said they were a field technician, and that's overwhelmingly um, the high percentage there. And then it was, you know, it was split a little bit with uh, six crew chiefs and six field directors and six project managers and seven principal investigators and seven responded with other. Um, uh, we had uh, uh, 
um, just a small percentage of owners as well. So again, all these terms are pretty interchangeable, which is why I included a bunch of them on there. Um, so it's, uh, let's see, project manager, project manager. Yeah, we had six project managers. Again, 59 responses on this one, 59 responses on the last one. So everybody responded to this question. So when we're, when we're looking at these responses, um, the majority, uh, it looks like here, were field technicians um, with some others peppered in, which is good. And the next question, again, one of these setup questions is, are you employed full time or project based? And what I meant by that question was, you know, are you, you know, working project to project, you know, filling out applications every three to four weeks? Um, or are you a full time employee with somebody um, now? Full time employee, of course, in CRM is a little bit subjective as well, because you know, you're actually technically hired as a full time employee. Most of the time you work a job, even if it is only for three weeks, um, you know, because we don't really do 1099 stuff reference uh, one of our past podcasts. <laughs> so and you really gave us a good a good primer on 1099 stuff. Um, so we're almost always employed in some measure of full time. But that's obviously not what I meant. I meant, do you you know, when the project is over, do you still have a job, um, basically? And uh uh, 27, uh, people, 46.6% responded that they were full time and 31 or 53.4%, um, mentioned that they were project based. So, so, so these are the general, the, the general problems that I'm seeing, uh, uh based on what everybody is, has, um, has responded with, mm-hmm. um, horrible pay, basically a lack of professional respect, whether that be in your own company or with the client, uh, job stability, um, some lack of advancement as well as low balling issues. Yeah. So those are the, those are the general issues that I saw. There are a few others here and there, but these are the, these are the ones that consistently come back and, um, uh, with, with more responses, they mm-hmm. come back with more responses, and of course the mo- the biggest one is obviously going to be horrible pay. Yeah, and we've talked about this a number of times on this show, and it's constantly being talked about in um, in uh, uh, the field tech forums. And I sit back and I look at it and I go, okay, horrible pay. How do we make that change? And when I say we, I'm talking about more uh, field technicians and crew chiefs. Can field technicians and crew chiefs, who are who are the ones that are su- more suffering at, at this, at this, um, how can we make that change? Mm-hmm. And um, still, um, still maintain the respect of your of your. Um, uh, a field, the field directors um, uh, and management, um, mm-hmm. but and, and keep jobs as well because the last thing you want to be do, known as is the squeaky wheel. But at the same time, that squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm-hmm. So um, a, a horrible pay a lot of times is tied to lowballing. Lowballing is tied to availability of jobs out there, um, development positions mm-hmm. or, uh, development projects. Development projects are, are not tied necessarily to archeology. span They're tied to developers. Right. So how do we, as an, a field of archeologists go back to developers and say, we are valuable, please respect us professionally and, uh, don't, don't accept low bits. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and let's frame the pay question real quick, too, because um, are people talking about uh, um, are people talking about low pay relative to other other industries uh, and, and similar fields? Are they looking at the the biologist next to them and saying, why does that person get twice the amount of money than me? Or are they referencing low pay to their their own situation? You know, they have uh, you know, they just don't have enough money to pay their particular set of bills, um, their obligations. Um, and, and that that is actually different for everybody. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, w- I would say that. I would say that in most cases, if you come out of college with a family um, or you start a family shortly out of college, um, even if that just means a spouse or partner, and um, and then maybe you have children, maybe you have, maybe you bought a house, maybe you, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. If you do those things right out of college and right as you start field teching, you're going to have money problems, right? I mean, that's the same with almost any industry, unless you, you know, exited college and you're in an industry that pays you $125,000 a year for getting out of college. But uh, I know those are few and far between, but, you know, this is simply not one of those jobs. And I don't know why people think it can be, because if it were one of those jobs, it would be one of those jobs. There isn't somebody with a big stack of money somewhere that they're sitting on top of going, oh, I screwed out so many field techs this year. Look at all my money. You know, it's just not like that. (laughs) You don't see... You don't see PIs and and owners and things like that driving around in fancy cars and living in big fancy houses. I mean, maybe some of them do because statistics, but uh, in general, in general, it it, well, and and I will say also, because Doug's saying in some cases, yes, I would say in some cases, I've seen plenty of field techs driving around in fancy cars too, because everybody's situation is different. Okay. Everybody's situation is different. So we need to, we need to look at the average and say, you know, for this particular job, the archaeological field technician in the United States, is it sustainable? Um, is it something you can do? And you, you just have to, I think it's a problem of, of education in colleges, quite honestly. People aren't being told what the reality is. You know, they think because for some reason in 2016, we still think, oh, I got a college education, which means I'm set. The minute I graduate, I'm good to go. You know, I'll have the high paying job, 3.5 kids and a white picket fence and done. But it's just simply not the case. And I think this survey kind of proves that, too. Um, You know, we've got a lot of uh, we've got a lot of responses here that are relative to pay. And with half of our respondents being field technicians, um, then, yeah, it's kind of not a surprise. Um, Sonia. Yeah, I, I was able to talk with um, some field, I, I, I want to say field technicians. Um, at this point, they hadn't become field technicians yet because they'd only had a, um, a field school under their belt and had, hadn't quite graduated yet. So I sat down and I was talking with these field techs um, at one of one of my, uh, my alma maters. And um, basically, I said, so, so when you get out of school, what do you want to do? And, oh, I'd like to work for an agency as an agency archaeologist. And and I said, well, what do you mean by agency? Well, you know, um, like the BLM or, you know, uh, the the transportation department or something like that. And I said, how, what do you know about NEPA? Well, I know that it's the National Environmental Policy Act. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you understand the process? (laughs) And do you understand how NHPA falls into that? Uh, No. And I said, well, how much experience do you have? And, oh, I just took my field school. And I said, how much do you expect to make every year? Uh, $45,000, $50,000 a year. And I said, well, where did you get that idea that you'll be making forty five dollars to $50,000 right out of school? Well, my professors told me. 
that we'd be making somewhere between forty to sixty thousand dollars when we get out of school. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, um, that's fine. Um, and I had to explain, unless you're when you're coming right out of school, uh, you have you may have this expectation that you're going to be making tons of money uh, in the field of archaeology, but without without your education, so your bachelor's degree, and also significant amount of experience to understand how the intricacies of NHPA and NEPA work, you're you're not you're not going to be able to get that forty to sixty thousand dollar job right off the bat. Um, you can't make those eligibility determinations, not recommendations, but determinations legally, um, defensible determinations and be able to to get that job right out of school. Mm-hmm. So it, in some ways, and, and I'm not going to place the blame completely on to the education system, but in some ways I do want to say that that some some of these students are being misled uh, to a certain degree. And yeah, you if you look at the bell curve, you can say, okay, there are some kids who are making $60,000 because they're getting on these huge pipelines and working 60 hours a week doing all this overtime and making that much money. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, they're going to be hopping from job to job and working for 15 to $17 an hour, depending on where you live and work. And you may have a month where you're working great full time and you may have a month where you're not working or you may have two months where you're not working. Right. So don't base your lifestyle on what you, your expectations are coming out of college. And don't go out and get yourself a dog expecting that you'll be able to take him into the field with you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you're going to have to put that dog up in a kennel and that's going to cost like a thousand dollars a week. So be aware of all these things. You know, I'm just throwing that out as an as a as an example. Beware of your lifestyle. Beware of what your job is. Yeah, the dog thing is is kind of big, actually. I've seen uh, a number of people out here in the West that had dogs and often were working on mines. You can't take your dog on a mine. You just simply can't. Um, they won't allow it. And and even if you could take them on the mine, you could let them out of the vehicle and you want your dog sitting in a vehicle. Even if you left it running with the air conditioning on all day, I don't think anybody would go for that. Um, so so you're right. Um, I mean, I, I grew up with dogs my entire life and I haven't been able to have one for probably the last 10 years because I haven't felt I haven't felt like I could um, I could really handle that responsibility while being, uh, in archeology, span you know, it just hasn't, and I own my own company now, you know, but still if I leave, I mean, my wife doesn't want a dog, so I have to take care of that dog and I can't bring him, you know, I can't, I can't go, uh, I can't go do anything. So these people that I know that have dogs, they go and they board them while they're gone or they have them stay with friends or something like that. And it's just a, a serious point of stress all the time because they're gone a lot. So and I feel like that's a an easy extension straight on to children. Um, <laughs> you know, if you can't if you can't be home and and participating in your child's uh, uh, you know growth and development, whether you're a man or a woman and you're traveling, um, the other person shouldn't be saddled with the the entire responsibility for that. Um, that's just a 
philosophical thing. I think everybody thinks differently on that. But um, let's go ahead and take a break real quick and we'll come back and uh, continue this discussion because we have a lot more to talk about back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. All right, we're back. And we left on the last segment just as Stephen was getting ready to say some comments. So I wanted to give him the opportunity to do that uninterrupted. So Stephen, go ahead. Yeah, um, Cindy makes some really good points about... uh, the idea that we have for careers is that we're going to jump fully formed into, you know, like managerial or, you know, advanced levels. And like for any career, any, any career path, uh, it's, it's true that, you know, you're going to have to start at the bottom and you have to work your way up. Uh, the problem though, if, if you look at this, uh, at the survey and, and, you know, just, general discussion is that advancement is not what it used to be that it's a lot harder to go from the field tech where yeah you're, you're making entry-level pay but where do you go from there i mean the idea with entry-level pay is that you know you live a sparse lifestyle for the first five ten years of your career but eventually you get paid more and more and, and you work your way up in, in job duties and responsibilities and, and stuff like that go to grad school get your master's become a, you know, PI or supervisor, you know, gradually work your way up and, and, and start getting paid more. You know, you get your raises, you get your promotions. Problem is, um, one of the major uh, complaints is the lack of advancement, that those upper level jobs, um, people are already in those and there aren't more. And so there's a point where, you know, if you want change, if you want to move on and get beyond that, you know, base pay, you either have to be very lucky, very talented, or drop out and do something else. Because there is a point where, you know, it's like, I, you know, barely getting by and, and that's fine for the first few years. But after a point, it's like, hey, um, you know, I'd, li- I'd like something where I could afford to, you know, get a mortgage, buy mm-hmm. a car, a new car. Um, and, and not necessarily, you know, one of those Chris Webster fancy Teslas. <laughs> um, Someday. But, but yeah, that, you know, that's that's one of those major issues. Um, and, and, you know, that 
it, that's not an unreasonable expectation that you mm-hmm. you advance at some point in your career, right? Yeah. And the problem is, how do we make that happen? Right. I, I think the problem you're you're you nailed it on the head right there is is advancement, but that's such a that's such a nebulous, amorphous term in archaeology is advancement because there's so many different paths you can take. It doesn't just go field tech, crew chief, project manager, principal investigator, owner, right? It can, but advancement can be other things as well. And this is what Sony is saying in the background is defer- diversification. I mean, I don't know how many times we have hammered on diversification on this podcast. And I, I even just yesterday recorded... Um, episode zero of a new podcast, um, just called the Archaeology Podcast, more general show. Look for it in a couple months. And uh, one of the things we talked about was diversification. Um, you know, and this was from uh, my co-host for that show is a PhD student, and she's um, she's done CRM, she's done a bunch of different things. And she, without me prompting, is hammering on diversification. And, and, you know, that's why she's doing this podcast is because she wants to do something, something different. She wants to keep her, you know, her energy going. And uh, if you're just, uh, you know, if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, while you might be happy doing that, even um, you're probably not going to move very much in an upward uh, in an upward way, whatever up means for you. Um, and to some people, up just means money. Um, to other people up means responsibility. Um, you know, to some people up means I get to go to conferences and have that paid for and present papers. You know, I mean, up, up means different things to everybody. So, uh, you know, and and I want to bring this in before I forget, because this is tied to what we were talking about with expectations. Um, you know, a couple of the responses for, uh, for your biggest frustration were related to not being able to live where you want to live or there's not enough work. You know, I mean, there's some responses that say, oh, there's not enough work in archaeology or, you know, when the weather's good, there's not enough survey going on. I mean, that's that's such a a weird thing to say to me because um, it's like it's like me as an employer. I'm deciding not to work right now because I'm because as Stephen would think, I'm polishing my Tesla and I decided it's a nice day. I'm not going to go do survey. I'm just going to polish my Tesla. Right. It doesn't work that way. It's uh, it just as I mean, in reality, I'm polishing the rails on my yacht um, over in over in Naples, Italy. But no, seriously, it's uh it's, it's weird to say there's not enough work because people can't just generate and create work. The clients create the work, the agencies, the industry, you know, the current economy, the housing market, all those things create work. There's nothing we can do to make more work happen. Now, when you come down to the individual company owner level, there are often things that that person can do to make more work happen. Maybe they suck at writing proposals. Maybe they need to get somebody else in there that knows what they're doing. I don't know. But in general, industry-wide, you can't just make more work, Stephen. Yes, uh, that's true, and, and that I think that's a major flaw with our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, that the nature of our industry is that we are dependent on other people doing other developments. Um, that you know, other, some other firms, uh, you know, tech startups uh, mm-hmm. create, you know, whatever you call the creatives in, industry and, and stuff like that. Um, other industries are built on the idea that it, it's it's not so much that you're waiting for other people who need you because they're required to need you, that you are going out there and convincing people that you need you need me, you need my services. Mm-hmm. Like your your business slash 
personal lifestyle slash whatever is going to be better off if you hire me and my service. And that's not what we do. But perhaps that's something that uh, we need to consider branching out into that, you know, maybe uh, CRM archaeology needs to get beyond just pure regulatory compliance. Right. You know, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I mean, if I did, I'd be, um, well, not rich, but maybe slightly <laughs> less poor. I hear you. I hear um, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get your Tesla. Yeah. Uh, the cheap one. <laughs> the cheap one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah. So, but, but I mean, that's something we, we, we as an industry need to be considering is that, you know, like you're talking about individual diversification. How about, you know, corporate diversification? Why are we, and, you know, and, and when we diversify, we go into uh, other compliance things, mm-hmm. NEPA. You know, we get some biologists. You know, yeah. why aren't we doing things that aren't compliance-based? You know, maybe it's because we don't have anything that we can do. But And on diversification, you've mentioned on this podcast a number of times, Stephen, how your GIS skills pretty much landed you a job up in Canada. You know, or at least, or at least enhanced your your profile so that you could get one, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, I think that GIS is, is one of those that, uh, particularly for people with MAs, it, it's becoming more and more common. Mm-hmm. So it's as as a competitive um, diverse diversification. I don't know that that's necessarily the 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 as as much of a marker as it used to be. Um, you know, now, nowadays for me that it's not that I have GIS experience, it's that I have 20 years of GIS experience. Yeah. 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 There is a difference there. Well, if I get, uh, if I get my way and this will be for a different podcast, but, um, I'm, I'm planning to eliminate not only the back office, but also the GIS department. And there's, there's actually good ways to do that. Um, uh, and, and a lot of that involves people leveling up their skill sets, you know, so everybody knows how to do uh, pretty much everything. So, um, and that's, that's good. That's going to be a different time though. And, and hopefully, hopefully not too far away from now, but anyway, Doug, you had some, uh, comments on the last discussion. Oh man. Uh, so many comments. <laughs> so uh, many comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I'll just take it backwards from what Stephen was talking about. Um, so this has been a conversation I've been having for, uh, since I was an undergraduate. So I, I remember this conversation very, 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 uh, very clearly, um, I was in a class and we were discussing archaeology and no one could quite wrap their head around the idea of public archaeology. Mm-hmm. And no one was willing to say, like, my whole point that I went was you need to be doing public archaeology because archaeology is dependent on other people's interests. Mm-hmm. not your interests and maybe it was the wrong class uh, I don't know but everyone, no one could quite wrap their heads around that, the concept that um, you need to go out and you need to push the boundaries of archaeology and you need to make it important to other people so that archaeology survives and that back when I was talking about that I was talking about in terms of laws in a sense CRM is built off of, I don't know how to term this, but in a sense, 
we're almost a made up profession in that <laughs> obviously a, a baker has a very significant need. They provide you with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, a doctor has a very specific need. A lawyer, I know most people wouldn't like it, but they do help. Um, instead of us going out and shooting each other and killing each other, you sue each other. I'm not sure which is worse, but um, it does cut down on violence. And so there's a lot of needs, whereas we're basically regulatory and CRM is, is completely built off of federal and some state laws and now some local laws. But if they got so are lawyers, if we got rid of. So are lawyers. Lawyers, lawyers entire job is based at the, on the fact that there are laws. So, you know, I'm just going to throw them in with the, with us. <laughs> uh, yeah, but in a sense, they also they help mitigate um, and they're a lot more complex. I mean, we're talking, you know, people who are doing contracts, they help mitigate conflict, mm-hmm. um, even though it seems like they cause a lot of it. They the the, the role of the. Of a lawyer is to mitigate conflict, whereas the role of CRM. I mean, that's that's. I mean, if I can leave that just there, and <laughs> I, I imagine most archaeologists would have a really hard time articulating why we do what we do, and what would happen if, you know, we just didn't exist. Would mm-hmm. would the world end? Would there? I don't think it would, but um, we definitely need to push out. And the thing is also, even in CRM, you can make you can make it more relevant to people. So you can go out and do public archaeology, but you can also, I mean, there's so much land that we don't actually are, aren't able to excavate on. I mean, if you're just talking about purely not even diversifying, just trying to increase your market share, go to your local state um, legislation legislator and advocate for more laws. I mean, basically, we don't operate on private land. And that's massive amounts of area. And other countries aren't the same. Other countries um, outside the United States, all land requires archaeological work, no matter what. Um, I mean, you could really, you could, what, double, triple the amount of archaeology work out there if you got laws passed that covered private land as long as you know i realize that it's all complicated and that it's not just private land it's it's land that uses federal money so you get a lot of private land mixed in there but you know if it was mandatory for everyone you could really expand um crm or well, and let, go out and okay sorry chris I'll just you. no just let me comment real quick because we can do that in this country. We just need the will of the people to do it. California's uh, uh, California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, does require archaeology on private land for lots of different things. Now, I don't know the exact ins and outs of it and, and when it's required, but, um, you know, I, I have been told that a lot of there's a there's a lot of mom and pop organizations out in, uh, um, you know, from a CRM standpoint in California because, you are able to actually set up in your backyard uh, a CRM firm of just two people and have enough work. If you contact all the developers around and things like that and the homeowners, then you will have enough work to sustain you you know, throughout the year. Because if you want to put a shed up in your backyard, you've got to have uh, you know, a cultural resources assessment done um, in accordance with CEQA. So it is possible here. We just haven't 
decided to do that as a country yet, you know, but certain states could do it. And I don't know what other states have their own private land regulations. Maybe none. I don't know, honestly, but I'm sorry to continue. Yeah, well, that's, that's just my point. There are things we can do. It does take an investment of time or money or both to expand CRM, or you can just go out. I mean, how many archaeologists do documentary work? How many archaeologists do, um, you know, sort of, I guess the best ones would be like Crow Canyon, where you're allowed to, to get people to come in and excavate um, who are essentially interested there's a lot, and then of course there's much more. Um, how should we say it? Morally uh, <laughs> lacking people who do that as well, and just excavate uh, sites for you know Easter egg hunting. They call it um, looking for you know arrowhead points and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. there is so many other things that you could do to actually expand just staying in archaeology. Um, I, I don't think we should be saying you know there's no other way you can expand your work and that we're completely reliant on other people to find work. We can do that. We can go out and try to get our legislators to change the laws, to increase our market share. And every other profession does that. I mean, uh, they even have a term for it, rent seeking. Um, And, but I mean, it's, that's what you're, just, you know, this is life. You you have to go out there and fight for what you want to do. And I think we shouldn't be saying that. No, no, we're we're reliant on our our customers, or you know, when there's work, we can go out there and help create that work. Um, so I, I'm gonna disagree with what we were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I realize I've been talking for a little while, so I'll let someone else jump in, and then um, I'll talk about some statistics a little later, and so people actually know what they should be thinking about when they're what they should be expecting in terms of pay. Well, yeah, and I think in the next segment, which we're going to go to in a couple of minutes here, we'll we'll be getting into um, one of the final questions on the survey, which was uh, what can be done to fix your problems and improve your quality of life, just to get people's ideas on that. But, you know, Doug brought up a lot of good points, um, you know, and just to to, to talk to, to to speak to some of the other things in the what are your problems question, um, a lot of these a lot of these problems, quite honestly, that I'm seeing here are, are based on either somebody's unwillingness to move, um, an unfamiliarity with the industry. Um, a couple people are mentioning that, you know, they don't like who they're working for or whatever, you know, their, you know, their PI has issues or something like that. That's a problem you can fix. That's not something I would even put on a survey, quite honestly. Just change jobs, you know, go find somebody else to work for. Um, unless you've got that coveted, uh, permanent position and you're just willing to deal with it, then, you know, maybe you're just willing to deal with it. I don't know. So anyway, um, I think we're going to go to break, uh, a little, a little early real quick here, and then we'll come back and wrap up this discussion. We'll be back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Okay, we're back and uh, we're going to continue this discussion. And um, Doug, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, um, we're not special. 
Um, I, I know. I, I know the. Uh, this has been you know a survey of, of archaeologists and stuff, but all the comments that have been raised, for the most part, um, is not specific to archaeology. There are lots of other professions, other jobs, and people working in other areas that run into the exact same issues that we're discussing now. And, yeah, I mean, low pay is – there's the the minimum wage to $15 or $12 or $20 or whatever it is, trying to push that up because people can't make ends meet. Um Working in full-time jobs that are permanent or a lot more permanent than many archaeology jobs. And, I mean, was it uh, Starbucks probably is like the largest employer of people with degrees in the United <laughs> States? Um, I'd like to see that as an actual statistic because that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or or Walmart or, I mean, like most everyone now has a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, statistically coming up the generations, more people will have, um, some sort of college. So over half the people in the United States are, you know, under age of 30 or 25, um, have some sort of, of college. Now that doesn't mean like everyone has a, a PhD, um, and some people don't finish university, um, but a lot of people have, you know, associates, bachelors, masters, PhDs. Um, it's almost the the new high school degree, and they're simply looking at the wider economy across the world. And this is not just the United States or Canada, or mm-hmm. you know, it's across the world. Is we're actually seeing sort of a hollowing out of the middle class. So. You know, most of our most of the people who respond to the survey were techs, which is essentially is your bottom rung. But that's and you know, there's complaints about not being able to move up and, and the poor pay. But that's that's the, how the world's going at the moment. Is people, you know, there's a separation. If you're at the top, you're doing pretty well, and if you're at the bottom, you have temporary employment, not enough money, and a whole host of other problems associated with that. And I just, I mean. Maybe two, three weeks ago, I got an email from, I know we keep saying, you know, biologists, um, <laughs> as though somehow they have a better life than we do. Um, and they maybe get paid slightly more, but um, I just got an email from biologists asking about my numbers for archaeology because he wants them for to figure out how to do it for biology because they have the exact same problem. Essentially, temporary contracts, um, poor pay. I'm not sure what he means by poor pay, um, if it's comparable, but right. in a sense, you know, bio- biologists, you know, everyone who's out there doing, you know, the sort of environmental assessments, they're in the same boat as archaeologists. Most of them are on temporary contracts. Most of them can't get a permanent job. There's no way to move up. There's not many opportunities to advance. Um, there's a lot of moving around, just like archaeologists. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of other people in the very similar um, position as archaeologists, and that's that's a sort of society-wide, um, economic-wide issue. Um, I know I just in the last segment said you could do something about it, <laughs> um, and that that's that's being a little optimistic on how widespread that issue is. 
Um, but I, I think we should, you know, take a step back and instead of saying, oh, poor us archaeologists, is to realize this is something that's, you know, going to affect everyone. And just because you, if you stop being an archaeologist doesn't necessarily mean your life's going to greatly improve um, and that you're going to suddenly, you know, make 80000 or 100000 or 120000 or whatever it is you think you should be making if you suddenly stop being an archaeologist. Well, and, and if you are making $80,000 a year, you're probably going to have, uh, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. Typically, you know, you'll you'll work your way up to $80,000 a year. But I guarantee you, as you're working your way up to $80,000 a year, you're also going to be paying off your house, your jet ski, your, you know, your whatever you picked up along the way to that 80000 And your 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 spendable cash, your expendable income is probably going to be not that much different than when you were making $25,000 a year. Um, it's just uh it's it's the keeping up with the Joneses, man. It's the it's the grass is greener, always greener on the other side. You know, nobody's ever happy with with, uh, you know, exactly what they're doing. And as as Stevens mentioned in the background, at least you'll have a jet ski. That's true. Um, and, and maybe you live in a lake. Who knows? Um, but I, th- I feel like people don't look at their surroundings and what they have and they take it for they take it for granted. Um you know, like, for example, you know, we I, I my wife and I, we sometimes complain that, oh, we don't have enough to do this and this and this. But we did just spend three and a half weeks in Italy um, working over there and staying in, you know, a local house and uh, in a small town. We weren't doing the touristy thing. We were we were immersed in this town and, and working there and doing what uh and doing things like like they were doing. And I kept looking around and I was going, OK, these people see they see movies, uh, TV shows and things ported in from the United States and other parts of Europe. And yet they still have no desire to have air conditioning. They can. They could. It's not that expensive. Um, they know that dryers exist, but nobody in freaking Europe has a dryer. Um, they know that uh, uh, all these other things that people have, 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 you know, all these little things. And yet they just it's it's cultural. They just simply don't want them. Um, it's not like they can't afford them. Chris, I might disagree with that. I, I as as you know, living in Europe, um, the reason people don't have dryers and stuff like that is houses are so tiny. Not in Absolutely Italy. Tiny. Not in Italy. These houses are freaking enormous. You could stack a set of dryer easily right next to the washer in all the places that we saw. I guarantee you that they were huge. Now, some people, you're, you're right, live in smaller places, but even the pieces that are the people that are quote unquote well off, living in a nice place, you know, everything's marble over there. It's all crazy. You could afford a dryer. They just simply don't have one um, because they just hang their clothes outside. You know, we stayed in an Airbnb on this island one time and I I managed to find the stairs off the back of the house up to the roof. And the only thing on the big flat roof were uh, was, a you know, uh, lines for hanging your clothes. I mean, this these people could have afforded a dryer and had a place to put one. Trust me. Uh, they just didn't have one. It's largely cultural. Um, you know, I mean, this the Airbnb that we stayed in while we were there and then the one we stayed in for that weekend um, in Prosciutto, this little island, both people that are well off, huge houses, big, nice houses, got lots of nice things. You know, everything's great in there. Uh, they're not poor. They're not suffering. They're not doing anything. They just don't have a dryer. You know, yeah, I'll agree with you, Doug. There's a lot of places, especially in the UK, that are a lot smaller and dryers are an issue. But Either way, the point is, um, the point is, 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 is being happy with what you have, I think is, is really what it is. Um, because going back to some of these questions here, uh, to, to bring this back to the survey in the last 10 minutes here, um, 
you know, people, people talking about not being able to advance to a higher position, a lack of respect, um, uh, against, uh, towards field techs. I've seen that a lot. You know, I've moved around different jobs. Um, you know, you go to a new job, nobody knows you. They instantly assume that you don't know anything. That's a leadership problem. Okay. They, they don't, they don't look at your CV. Typically the crew chiefs have never seen your CV and, or the project managers, even sometimes they haven't even seen your CV. They don't know what you can do. And it's just part of our job that you have to tell them what you can do. Okay. Um, and, and, and prove to them what you can do. And then you'll you'll earn the respect that uh, that you're getting. But you're not going to walk into any job anywhere on the entire planet and instantly have the respect of your peers. You have to earn that. Okay, it's just with CRM, you know, with other jobs, you're doing that once or twice per career. You know, you're not moving around that much with CRM. You're doing it every three weeks. Okay, you're always having to prove yourself. And I could see how people would say there's a there's a lack of respect there. So, um, I you know, I want to I want to shift the shift gears just a little bit because we do only have 10 minutes left. But the final question, um, the final important question was basically what can be done to fix all the problems that you mentioned in the previous questions. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, I don't knows. There was a lot of, you know, quit your job, change careers, you know, some of the snarky, snarky answers, um, higher pay, more consistent hours, full-time work, increased wages, a lot of stuff that nobody really has any control over. But I think one of the I think one of the telling things, and then I'll kick it off to you guys, um, is that even though we said you can be anonymous and you can change your voice, we had fifty nine percent of responses respondents say that they don't want any help from us. They don't want to talk to us about you know what what their possible problems are. Um, you know, we we had another question about you know can we contact you, and seventy three percent said no. So. If you're not, if you want to just sit there and talk about all your problems and then not do anything about it, well, that's your prerogative. But um, my guess is you're going to have to do something about it if you want to if you want to change your situation. Only you can do that. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Now that being said, you know we're trying to do some things on the other side that'll that'll help you towards that. But uh, you're going to have to make that choice. You know you're going to have to take charge of your own career. So uh, referencing this. Um, this question about what can be done to fix your problems and improve quality of life. Any comments on that from the from the other co-hosts? Um, just to throw this out in the last six minutes. I, I've um, I recommended uh, just education, mm-hmm. um, and when I say education, I don't mean college. I mean a baptism by fire, right. education by work, um, and education also from the leadership. Leaderships are exactly that. They're leaders. They they take a leadership role in educating and mentoring people who work for them. And it's our job as leaders to mentor these people, to teach them how things work in this line of work. Um, one thing that I've found is very helpful is to m- talk to my crews about what a budget is, why, how pay mm-hmm. is affected by um, the type of job that we're doing. Um, Let them see what the billing rates are. Let them understand or help them to understand um, what overhead is. Why you're not making, you know, $25 in profit off of someone who's making $10 an hour. Not that I'm saying that we pay $10 an hour, but I'm just using that as an example. If you have a $35 billing rate, it's about education. And, um, and, and having leaders act as leaders and mentors 
And uh, I think sometimes leadership forgets that. And that's sometimes where um, field technicians, crew chiefs, field directors, even project managers to a certain degree, feel like there's a lack of respect inside mm-hmm. our our uh, profession as well. Um, so it, it, it's, it's important that we continue to educate ourselves um, and, uh, and, and mentor people who are just coming in as well. Yeah, um, I'd say along the idea, along the, what Sonia was saying, we also need to let people know what their expectations is. And this is going back to what you were talking about earlier, Chris, about um, people, actually, I could be completely wrong, maybe it was, I was, it was Sonia, who were saying, you know, you talk to university students and they were expecting um, 40, 60,000 a year right off the bat. And, you know, yep. yeah, I, I, I've run those numbers. Uh, it's It's been a couple of, of years, but I can tell you right now, um, starting off, so this is the numbers I have are from 2012. So it's probably gone up, but the majority of field tech wages across the United States, and so certain places it was not as not as high, were between 12 and 14 dollars, and you had a couple that were up, you know, in the 20s, but that was jobs advertised in Alaska or Hawaii or outside of San Francisco where. Yeah, that sounds great, but then you calculate in the cost of living, and it's not that great. And so, probably, um, I still I need to go back and update these numbers and do the last couple of years. But really, you're probably looking at at the low end 13, 14 bucks an hour, at the high end 15, 16, um, and that's going to be a, you know across the United States, maybe a little higher in the West, a little lower in the East. And that's, that's what you will be, that's what you should probably be thinking about what you'll be making when you get out of university and you get your first job. And it doesn't get much better for, uh, you know, crew chief or senior tech or however they name it. It's only a dollar or two more for a lot more responsibility um, going forward. And honestly, you're, you're to even be pushing, uh, pro, you know, project managers, people who are sort of middle management who probably have a permanent position, working their way up, are probably only going to be making maybe twenty to twenty-five dollars. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are going to be some people who are going to be making much more, and there'll be some people making much less as well. These are all averages, um, and that's you know, that's people who've been there for. 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so yeah, if you're imagining now, if you're only making you know, 15, 20 bucks and 10 years or 15 years, you might only be making $10 more an hour. So, you know, 2025, 20, mm-hmm. increase that for inflation, you know, in 10 years, whatever it will be. Um, and it is one of those things that you also... I know we're talking about like moving around and stuff, but a lot of people don't realize that actually for this job, you do have to move around. And again, back to we're not special. You'll have to move around for any career you're in. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a huge thing with economists. They've studied this for decades. The ability to move 
mm-hmm. will help your career no matter what you do because you can always find a job. I mean, if you think about it, in your immediate area, even if you're in a you know a city of a million people or two million or five million, there's only going to be so many jobs in what you do. I mean, yeah, there'll be plenty of other jobs. So you can work at Starbucks because there'll be 500 Starbucks in your city. Um, but if you want to get a higher paying job, you usually have to move. And I think people have gotten this concept of, you know, universities where there's not very mo- much mobility and you become a tenure track professor at wherever university you go to and you just stay there your entire life. Mm-hmm. Whereas vast majority of professions if you're able to move, and I say able because not everyone can. If you have, you know, family you need to be around, if you have, you know, someone with a disability that you need to um, take care of. So um, my sister is uh, has um, basically learning disabilities and she's she's she gets support, but that support is tied to the state of New Mexico. So she'll never be able, we'll never be able to move her out of the state. Mm-hmm. And that means my parents are, are, they're there for the rest of their lives. Um, and then I possibly will have to go back and be there for a long time. Right. And there's people with issues like that. There's family. If you have a two, two home income, um, you know, moving across country for just a two or $3 increase. I mean, it'll help you in the long term, and you'll be able to move up. But if, you know, that means that your spouse is suddenly giving up a, a big you know, chunk of their pay. It doesn't really help. And so you have to negotiate all of that. So it's not always possible, but people should be thinking about the ability to move if you can. And it's, it's across everything. So even if you decide that archaeology is not for you and you uh, go become a teacher or a lawyer or anything like that, the ability to move will always increase your salary and, um, I guess your, yeah. your life out of benefits. Um, yeah. and that's, that's what people should consider is that you can't just sit in one place and, you know, hope that the jobs roll in. There aren't enough jobs wherever you're doing in the area that you want to be. Um, that will pay well enough for the lifestyle that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, I mean, you can get lucky. I'll be, I'll throw it out there. You, you will get lucky, but <laughs> most people will have to move Yeah. Um, at some point in their life. All right. Um, Steven, you got some final thoughts on this in the last few minutes? Yeah. Uh, the, listen to Doug talk. Um, the, my final thought is that, uh, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is, kind of a long-term goal thing that, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, it's like, if you want to be an archaeologist, don't expect, you know, that things are going to change that differently from, you know, when you're fresh out of college or stuff like that. Um, I would, I, I think it's, it's necessary to think in, in kind of in the opposite direction where um, most of our lives are kind, kind of, a network of opportunities where we do one thing, we see an opportunity for something else, we follow it. We see an opportunity for something else, we follow it. And, and yeah, to a certain degree, like we, we try to shape it as best we can. Like, you know, we go back to grad school or whatever, but really you don't know what, how things are going to pan out 
and how your experiences from one thing are going to lead to another thing. And it might be leaving archaeology altogether or a traditional sense of archaeology uh, within CRM field. You know, maybe you're going to start doing some alt academic thing or something else or mm-hmm. you leave it all together and get into a different field. But it it's I'm not sure that, you know, most of us do not plan in that way. Most of us, you know, we have like maybe one or two steps down the road and we just follow those opportunities as they show up. Right. So I think that giving the advice of like, you know, you have to be, you know, like there's some sort of direction to this that, you know, that, that they should be thinking, you know, five steps down the road of how they're going to, you know, diversify and, and stuff like that. That That's stuff that happens organically and, and trying to plan it beyond of what are you interested in? What would you like to try next? Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that works. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, this has been some great stuff and I, I know we could go on and on about this stuff, but I just hope that, uh, you know, our co-host had some really great comments and I hope that people didn't get, uh, um, see this as a source of frustration, but more as a, uh, sort of opening up of, um, maybe your possibilities and maybe opening your eyes a little bit to the nature of the field. Cause I think once you pull back the veil a little bit and you really understand what's going on here, it'll help you advance yourself, um, in your career in, in whatever way you define advancement. And that's, that's, I think the first step is people need to define advancement for themselves. If it's just a bigger paycheck, you're probably, you know, like any job, if you're only there for the paycheck, you're probably there for the wrong reasons. And you're just going to be constantly frustrated. Um, not that you can't, not that you shouldn't focus on paying your bills, but, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have to look at the other things you get out of that job. So, we're going to be um, contacting some of the people that that volunteered some information, some contact information um, to see if they'll come on the show and we can talk about their specific responses. Um, we'll be doing that for a future podcast, probably in a, in a month or so. And we'll we'll see if we can't keep this conversation going, because I think I think talking about these things frames um a lot of what is, you know, what we have, all the, all the stuff that happens on Facebook that we talk about, a lot of that is framed by the responses in this little short survey here. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, anyway, that's it for now. Um, we'll see you guys next time on the Sierra Marquette podcast and, uh, stay tuned for some more information. And, um, like I said, if you put your contact information down there, we'll, we'll likely be contacting you shortly. So thanks a lot. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. 
Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. See ya. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.